might need that. <laughs> Good morning, church. For our guests, my name is Rick. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity, and I have the privilege of bringing God's Word this morning. Now, we're currently in our series, Trinity Community Church Doctrine, Distinctives, and Direction. And the title of this morning's message is The Birth of the New Testament Church, Relationships at Trinity. So as you know, we've been changing things up a bit lately by hitting the pause button on our expository preaching method of going through an entire book of the Bible. This morning, we'll be narrowing our focus on relationships here at Trinity and relationships in general in the church. Uh, We'll start out this morning by putting our text, which Bobby just read, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, into context. So we'll walk through it topically, but using expositional principles. Now, Acts 2 is part two of the Gospel of Luke. Both books, Luke and Acts, are dedicated to a person named Theopolis. Acts 1, verse 1, explicitly refers back to Luke's Gospel. It says, in the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then Acts picks up where the Gospels left off. The story begins with Christ's ascension and the events at Pentecost. In Acts 2, verses 14 through 36, is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The end of Peter's sermon would have been 50 days after the resurrection and 10 days after Christ's ascension. Peter ends his sermon on a great Christ-exalting note where he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what was their response? Well, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So God brings them into conviction. And in verse 38, Peter answers them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this verse has been confusing to some by connecting baptism to the forgiveness of sins. This verse does not tell us how baptism works in relation to forgiveness of sins. In Acts 3.19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. As you can see, there's no mention of baptism, and there are many other examples in Scripture. Here at Trinity, we believe baptism and the Lord's Supper are two ordinances of the church to be observed until Christ's return. They're not means of salvation, but they are means of God's sanctifying grace and blessing and encouragement to the faithful in Christ Jesus. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of the believer in water. It's an outward, outward sign of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Now, in verse 40, states, With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And what was the result? Well, God's gift of repentance. 
I want you to, I'm sorry, I lost my place. 3,000 people profess faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about that. So many times I find myself, I just read through Scripture and I don't stop to think about that. 3,000 people became part of the first church. That is amazing. In a short amount of time, you had Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, the coming of the Spirit, and the church was born. What an amazing time that must have been. I mean, just an amazing time as we look at that. Well, now we get to Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. So let's pray before we get started. Well, Father, I am so aware of my great need of your help this morning in bringing your word to your church. May your Holy Spirit guide me, and may your Spirit be actively at work in those hearing your word. May not one of us leave this morning unchanged. Would you cut us to the heart this morning? For your glory alone, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the gray dawn of an April day in 1945 in a Nazi camp of Flossenburg, a pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed. He was executed by special order of Heinrich Himmler, Hitler's executioner. He had been arrested two years before, and over that period of two years, he had been moved from prison to prison to prison, finally ending up at Flossenburg. In the moving of Bonhoeffer from place to place, he lost all contact with the outside world. Everyone that he knew was severed from him. He lost, according to his own testimony, the most precious possession he had, and that was fellowship. Yes, fellowship. Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together based on Psalm 133. He had written that book years before. He wrote of the richness of fellowship, which he lost during his time of imprisonment leading up to his death. And this is what he said. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. A physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. How inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who, by God's will, are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Now that is the church. So church, I want you to look around the auditorium. Look around at your fellow believers in this room. Do you feel privileged to be here this morning? I know I do. Is the physical presence of, the, of your fellow believers a source of incomparable joy and strength to you? Well, I believe the big idea of this morning's message is the church, a community of people joined by a common life, united by common values and a common purpose, Devoted to living out this life together within the larger society. And I have four points to this morning's message. So let's jump in with point number one, a community of people. 
If you're looking in your Bibles at um, Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the first question we need to answer this morning is who are they? Well, they are the church. So we need to answer who's the church? Well, the church is not this building. The church is not a room. The church are the believers. That's who they are. It's the believers who trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. So we also need to understand that there are no different Christ, uh, classes of they. What I mean by that, if you have trusted in Jesus as Savior, you are on level ground with other believers. Now, a believer who has been walking with the Lord for 40 years and one who started trusting the Lord today, you're both on the same level ground of grace and acceptance. And I think this is important that we understand this for life in the church. Matthew 20, verse 1 and 2 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers, for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And then we read on, and it goes on to say, in the third, sixth, and ninth hour, he did the same. He sent them out into the vineyard. And then verses six through nine says, and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, "Go, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired at the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, have you ever struggled with this passage? We have all lost sight at times and have forgotten where we were. You see, those who waited all day were desperate for work, waiting 10 hours because of their need. Those hired first, they forgot their desperation, which led to grumbling and complaining. Now, you may be, think, you may be thinking that you came on the 11th hour, and you really don't matter to the fellowship of the church. Compared to other believers, you really don't have much to offer. Maybe you think you're too young or you're too old. Or you may struggle with sinful comparison. You judge a brother or sister on their failings, their lack of maturity. Church, we all need to be reminded we are on level ground as believers in Christ. We have been bought with a price, the same price, the ultimate price. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So whether you came on the 11th hour or the first hour, God has a purpose for you and the body of believers of which you call home. For every true follower of Christ, it's not a you do. 
but it's a we do. Your contributions are equally needed. We all stand side by side together for the gospel. Well, let's move on to verse 42. They can, uh, let's continue on verse 42. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> so they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now we find ourselves devoted to many things that this world has to offer. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we most passionate about? Is it entertainment, social media? Could it be sports, politics? Politics is a big one. Your job? And I could go on and on. You see, what we are most passionate about, we are devoted to. And I learned many years ago a simple gauge to kind of see what I'm devoted to. And it's to take a look at your calendar. Go back a few months. If you're like me, I put everything in my calendar. And that's going to show you what you're devoted to. Or go back and look at your bank statements, your credit card statements. And sometimes it's hard to do that. And you see what you've been devoted to. Trinity, may we be devoted to the teaching of God's word, zealous to exalt his name and his glorious truths of the gospel. The church in Acts continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching And I want you to see what they experienced. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the word awe means reverence. The awareness that something supernatural is going on, that God is at work. So I want you to think about what was happening at that time seeing God's miraculous work of salvation and progress, the miracle of 3,000 souls being saved. I mean, just imagine what the scene must have been like. God was obviously at work, and it could not be explained what was going on. May we experience that awe of God's miraculous work of salvation here at Trinity Church. As we devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word, I pray it would lead us to fellowship with one another, the breaking of bread together and praying together. And that leads me to my second point, a common life. So if you look with me at, and we're going to start in the second half of verse 42, in the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now the word fellowship, koinonia, describes the experience of having something in common, sharing things in common with others. So look at verse 44 with me. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Church, the gospel binds us believers together. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. But church, it's far richer than just mere human fellowship. As we see in the second half of this verse, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the Father because of His Son. 
So what do we have in common? Well, we believers come together at the foot of the cross. And we must come together at the foot of the cross because we all have sin in common. We are sinners saved by grace. Jesus died on that cross for our sins to reconcile us to God and to each other. So I want you to think about this, church. We have more in common with a Chinese believer we have never met. We, have, we don't know anything about his or her suffering or the hardship of their life. We share nothing in common except Jesus Christ. And in that, we share more in common with that believer than we do with the, a person that may love the same sports we love, may love the same movies we love. We are more connected to that Chinese believer than we are with our fellow Americans. Now, that may offend some. And the reason I would say that, church, is because there is nothing, nothing greater that brings things in common than the blood of Christ and the spirit that lives inside each one of us believers. When fellowship is mentioned in verse 42, it is followed by the breaking of bread, and the prayers. When we participate in communion and we are remembering, I'm sorry, my computer just jumped for some reason. <laughs> when we participate in communion, we are remembering what Christ has done for us. We are remembering the cross, the symbol of our unity, and the prayers. Now remember, this was the brand new infant church. No longer did they have to go through a priest. They now had instant access to the throne of grace. So they would come together in unity to the great high priest who sits at God's right hand. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, may we not take our times of corporate prayer for granted. Every Sunday morning, we come together in unity at 9.15 to pray. I would love for you to join us. Now, the breaking of bread and prayers, these things we as believers have in common, and it produces unity and love for one another. Now, Bonhoeffer lost his fellowship with other believers. He continued in his book, Life Together, to say, Let him who has such a privilege thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in fellowship with Christian brothers. Church, may we not take for granted our relationships, or I could say fellowship with each other. I'd like to tell you a story about a guy that I know, and he took for granted his relationships. I've known him for many years, and he's okay with me sharing this, but I won't name any names. Well, this guy was at a time in his life when he was struggling with relationships in the church. 
He was perfectly fine with it just being his wife and his kids. He went to church, but church started to get a little messy. So he moved his, his family to another town. And the excuse was he needed to be closer to work. Now he went to church in this new town, but boy, did he avoid getting connected. He didn't want it to get messy again. Well, his job was demanding much from him. And when he was at work, he was surrounded by very challenging people. Well, by God's grace, he started to see that he wasn't in a good place. You see, he knew deep down he needed to be with those that knew him. He needed to be in fellowship with his brothers and sisters in the Lord. So God, in his mercy and grace, put a good fear in his heart that being isolated from other believers, it was just dumb. Put it bluntly. So he and his wife decided that they must move back and attend their previous church where they felt like God had called them to be. Things didn't change overnight. But God began to, to put him in the fellowship with different men that were willing to step out and share truth with him. One evening, he and other group leaders were meeting with a new pastor to the church who was asking each one of them to share a little bit about themselves. Well, when it was his turn to share, he was feeling pretty frustrated. During the conversation, he, just, he realized just how weak he was in his theology and his doctrine just by listening to the other ones that had shared that night. And he knew he just wasn't in a good place with his walk. So not really knowing what to say when it was his turn, he looked at that pastor and he said, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even like people. <laughs> well, this pastor looked at that guy with a straight face and just politely said, okay. And I'm sure he was thinking at that time, what in the world have I gotten myself into? <laughs> well, church, that guy was me. 23 years ago. Oh, God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, used many different believers over many years to take me from not really liking people to loving people. Because of God's grace of fellowship, I can say my life has never been the same. So I'd ask you this morning, are you connected or disconnected with God's people, the church? You know, you can attend every Sunday and not be connected. I've been there and I've done that. True fellowship is not a nice, how are you doing on a Sunday morning? It's not watching football. It's not playing golf or whatever sport you may like. I won't mention soccer because it's not a sport. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> got any It's not even having friends over for dinner or just hanging out and playing games. 
Now, these things are not bad. They're actually needed. They're means of building those relationships. We need time together to get to know one another, to build trusted relationships. We need those relationships, though, to grow into fellowship. A few months ago, Bobby Hamlet said something at the end of a text with the elders, and it made me step back and think. He said, guys, I just want to be real. True fellowship is that we are partners in the gospel. You see, we are in this fight together and sharing the gospel message to a lost and dying world. We're in a fight in which the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. True fellowship is having a love for one another to such a degree that the world will know that we serve Christ. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Church, for us to partner in bringing the gospel to our community, to hold each other up during the times of trials and hardships, we must go deeper than a polite, how are you doing on a Sunday morning? Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, we position ourselves for fellowship when we get together to stir one another up for the gospel. We participate in a community group, encouraging and praying for each other. We meet with another believer over coffee, sharing our burdens together. When God's word is preached on Sunday morning and conviction comes, and you ask for prayer, and your brothers and sisters gather around you, and pray for you, and encourage you. We position ourselves for fellowship when we get beyond the nice, how are you doing, and we get real with one another. The Bible is filled with things we are to do to, with, and for one another. Let me run through a small sample. We're to worship together, Ephesians 5, 18, and 20. Pray for one another, Ephesians 6, 18, Carry one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Confess our sins to one another. James 5, 16. Correct one another. Galatians 6, 1. And Matthew 18, 15. Serve one another. Galatians 5, 13. But church, for the one another's, we must have trusted relationships that leads to fellowship. You can't do that by being a Sunday attender. Now, I mentioned community groups earlier. Participating in a community group will give you a chance to get to know other believers in a different way. As you discuss Sunday's message, or you go through a book study, or you pray for each other, you get to hear a person's heart. You hear their fears, their struggles, their joys. Hebrews 10 is actually practiced as you meet together, stirring one another up to love and good works and encouraging one another. Church, the one another's knit us together in Christ. We don't know a better way 
to get involved in the life of the church than to participate in a community group. Do you want to be known? To grow in your fellowship with other believers? To be real? I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a community group, find one and join in. I have to ask myself this question, and I'd ask you, when was the last time you were able to encourage another believer? It is hard to encourage someone you really don't know. Well, verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this verse can easily be misunderstood and misused. What we need to understand is the context of what was taking place. Jerusalem had many pilgrims who had come for the feast. Historians would say that as many as a million would move in at feast time. So people would open their homes and they would share everything that they had. It was a common thing during that time for everybody to share everything. You see, they didn't have large hotels, bed and breakfasts and Airbnbs. So here comes Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved and others were being added daily and a lot of them most likely out-of-towners. Instantly, you had many needs that had to be dealt with. Now, the church stepped in to provide for those needs. See, they didn't have a government agency that would step in. Now, I want you to remember, when I say the church, I'm talking about the believers. So the individual believers would see a need, sell something, and answer that need. Now, verse 45, it can be threatening to us. We own a lot of things. We believe in private property. And I don't believe this verse is about communal living, where you put everything in a big pot and then you dole it out on equal basis. But we do need to check our hearts in this area. We may try to justify our lifestyle, our attachments to things, to write off this text. I believe Luke is trying to get at the hearts of those new believers and to our hearts this morning as well. Luke admired sacrificial giving for the sake of the needy. Luke alone tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of a rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns, the story of God's great banquet that people wouldn't come to because they had fields and cattle to tend to. The story of the dishonest manager. The parable of the rich man in Lazarus. Luke, more than any other New Testament writer, stresses the danger of our love for possessions and money over the needs of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, it can be easy to always look at your church leadership to decide on benevolence and to take care of different needs in the church. But I would say that we all need to be benevolent. You may be thinking, I work hard for my money. I'm not able to give some of it up and do without something. 
It's easy to be legalistic and to build a case for that. I've tried. Just can't build a biblical case for it, though. 1 John three sixteen. by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, we may think that we would be willing to lay our life down for another brother or sister in the Lord. But are we willing to give a dollar to that brother and sister in need? Church, may we have a heart of benevolence towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the elders here at Trinity are very thankful. As you heard Christian, even this morning in announcements, that many times we present different needs to the church and we're always amazed at how you respond, church. So thank you. We thank God for you. Well, the church, a community of people, believers, joined by a common life, fellowship with one another, and my third point, united by common values gospel truths. Look with me at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now you can just hear the unity in this verse. Now the church had just been established. So the new believers would still go to the temple. And they would go to pray together. And I'm sure when they went to the temple to pray, they couldn't help but to share the good news of the gospel. Now, the breaking of bread depicts the sharing of our life together. Kelly Capick noted in an excerpt from the ESV Men's Devotional Bible that reads, Communing with the Creator is meant to be mutual, not simply unidirectional. We are to listen and speak, to receive and give. Being in communion with God and others is a key to human flourishing. Capet goes on to say, as Christians, we are to cultivate loving concern for other people. But this must always be understood in light of how we are drawn into a life-giving relationship with God himself. Church, as we spend time together, whether it's having a meal together, a cup of coffee, or a walk around the block, may we encourage one another to grow in our gospel convictions. But we have to be together to do that. And may our time together lead to our love for our Savior to grow. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Church, may we position ourselves to grow in godliness, to be used by God for his gospel message to be proclaimed. And I believe scripture is very clear. It is a group project. I can't imagine my life apart from the church. I've tried to run I've tried to hide and avoid being used by God. There's a song 
Come thou fount every blessing. It has a line in it that I can so relate to. Now, I can't hold a note, so I will read it to you, and you'll be thankful for that. It says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, in his unmerited mercy and grace, put other believers in our lives to spur us on for the gospel, to persevere to the end. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We need Christian fellowship. Scripture doesn't make it optional. So I ask you this morning, are you prone to wander? I don't believe that we're ever idle in our walk with the Lord. I've heard it said that we're either growing or maybe we're just leaning sometimes in the right direction or we're wandering from the fold of God. The church in Acts were in fellowship together. They had common values. They were happy and excited about Christ. I mean, look at the end of verse 46. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know, I love it when we get together here at the building. Whether it's for a Sunday morning or a special event, you just see people gathering and talking and enjoying each other's company and sharing. And there's always a time that you'll see somebody praying over in the corner for somebody. I mean, you can hear... Anytime we gather, you can hear the joy in the room. Sometimes it's hard to get you all to calm down when we come up here. And I love that. Church, we share common values of the gospel message. And in that, we have a common purpose. And that is my final point. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Church, ultimately, our lives are intended to present to the world a compelling witness of the grace of God. Our unity and love for one another is the most powerful testimony we will give to unbelievers who are lost, isolated, and ultimately without hope. So I'd like to ask you this morning, are you part of the family of God? If not, you may be asking this morning, what shall I do? If we go back to Acts 2, verse 37, now they heard this and they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You know, it's only 
a miracle of sovereign grace that would explain why you would even be asking that question this morning. You are not here by chance. Well, look back at verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, have you acknowledged and repented for your sins? And then the worship team can come on up. Have you asked Jesus for forgiveness? Has the Holy Spirit given you a a new hope for life in Christ? If not, you can do that right now, right there where you sit. And you can be part of the family of God, a family who will come alongside of you in this journey. So I'd like to end this morning with a devotional on Romans 5, 9 through 11, titled The End of the Gospel, and it's by John Piper. And he asked the question, what do we need to be saved from? Well, verse 9 states it clearly, the wrath of God. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Piper goes on to say, but that is that the highest, best, fullest, most satisfying prize of the gospel? No, verse 10 says, much more shall we be saved by his life. And then verse 11 takes it all the way up to the ultimate end and the goal of the gospel. More than that, we also rejoice in God. That is the final and the highest good of the good news. There is not another more than that, than that. There's only Paul saying how we got there. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The end of the gospel is that we rejoice in God, the highest, the fullest, the deepest, sweetest good of the gospel is God himself enjoyed by his redeemed people. Yes. Church, that is the ultimate relationship. So let's rejoice in our God this morning. Let's stand and worship our Lord and Savior.